Good morning, church. We are in the last two weeks of a series called Worship Wars, where we're talking about idolatry and and how we move back uh, Christ at the center of our lives instead of the various things that sometimes take His place. And uh, we've sung about that this morning, right? In Christ alone, this song is a reminder to us that it's in Him alone that our forgiveness is found, that our identity should be found. And so uh, during this series, we've uh, defined idolatry, that idolatry in modern day is much less statues that we worship. It's the good things in our lives, the best things sometimes that we elevate to places that really uh, cause dysfunction in our lives rather than keeping Christ there. Uh, and then we, uh, we've identified our idols. Over the last five weeks, we've talked about several different idols and last week about the deeper idols that uh, really fuel the idolatry in our lives. But today I want to make the shift to what do we do now that we have identified those idols? How do we remove those things from, uh, to, to the places they should be in our lives instead of the ultimate places that we give them? And so today, to do that, I want to remind you of a, a story, a description of idolatry that comes from the book of Jeremiah. So if you have your Bibles, open with me, if you would, your tablets to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah 10, I want to start reading in verse 1. Jeremiah's description, this is the word of the Lord about idolatry and how destructive it can be, how, uh, how really dysfunctional it is if you look at it closely. This is what uh, it says there in Jeremiah 10 verse 1. Hear what the Lord says to you, people of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. That's a pretty scathing indictment of idolatry, right? You put it in those terms, you look at what it takes to create an idol. It's a full day's work. You've got to cut down the tree. Then you've got to take a craftsman who chisels that tree down into the right shape, and then you overlay it with gold and silver. You take hammer and nails and make sure you, you get it put in place so it doesn't fall over, and then you worship this thing you've created. It's an odd thing, and in our day, we look at that and think, that is so strange. Why would you take created things and give them ultimate place? Why would you worship them? But in the series, we've discovered that sometimes we fall into that, don't we? We take people and we take things and we take experiences and we try to find all of our worth and we try to find all of our identity in those things when they always fail us. So Jeremiah continues his rant in verse 11. Uh, Hear these words. Tell them this, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They're worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. 
Why would anyone be tempted to worship something like that? Something that has been created rather than the maker of all things. But regardless of the answer, what we see in the story of Israel is that they turn aside to these worthless idols. But these idols continue to fail them. We all know this, don't we? That there are things in our lives that we sometimes put too much importance on and they, they fail us, but we return there time and time again, it seems like. And when Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels, he has a response that he gives. It's actually the first words that he speaks in the Gospel of Mark. People have been in exile and he's trying to call them back to faithfulness. And this is these the first words that Jesus speaks to those who've been in the desert following John, who prepared the way for Jesus. Listen to these words. Mark 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. See, Jesus announces the good news of the kingdom. He says there's a whole new reign, a reign of God that's on the earth. And so what are we supposed to do as the people of God when God establishes things in the world as he desires them? He calls to repent. So this morning, we're going to talk about repentance. And what that means is we turn over these idols and put God back on the throne of our lives. Let's pray as we open God's Word today. God, we, we give thanks for this Word. We give thanks for your Spirit who continues to breathe life into these words in black and white on a page. God, I pray today that you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts so that we might turn over these good things that you've given that we've made ultimate and to, and to put you back where you deserve to be in you alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, apologies have become an art form in our society, haven't they? In fact, just this week, there's probably going to be something coming up where you'll see somebody on a stage, on a cable news network, and they'll probably be making some kind of apology for something that's been done, whether that's a corporation that did something wrong or a politician or a sports star or celebrity. And this, this becomes so normal that we see it and we don't think twice about it. And every time this happens, it seems that the media outlets put this on TV, and after the apology comes out, the question then becomes, was it a sincere apology or not? So these news networks will bring on somebody who can read, like, you know, behavior and nonverbal communication, and they try to break down every move to see if it was legitimate or not. Uh, the interesting th- thing, though, about apologies is we don't know the sincerity of apologies by the words that are spoken, do we? only way we know if an apology is sincere or not is by the behavior that results in the days, the weeks, the months, even the years that follow. But in America, this is the way it works. They put it on, and even some websites will will put on a poll, right, on the news uh, network to say, hey, do you think this apology was sincere or not? Which makes everyone who makes an apology a defendant and every one of us the judge and jury. It's an interesting place we've gotten to, but I've noticed something as I've paid attention to the apologies that are spoken in my own life, as I think about the relationships that I have, as I look at these apologies that happen all the time on our television screens. We've mastered the art of non-apology apologies. Have you noticed this? A non-apology apology, what is it? A non-apology apology is when you work in the word sorry, but you show no regret or or basically share no blame in whatever's happened. There's four kinds of non-apology apologies that I've noticed recently. The first is the if apology. I'm sorry if I happen to offend you, right? You, you heard this before? And what, if you translate that, it really is, I didn't do anything wrong. But if you happen to be so weak and, 
and sensitive to be offended by what I've said, then I guess I'm sorry. So that's one option. The second is the passive apology. And usually you hear a corporation come out with one of these and they'll say, well, mistakes were made, right? They talk about it in the passive tense, right? So no one's really naming who was at fault in the situation. Blame's not even said. It's just, yeah, we know that something was wrong and you may have a life-altering disease as a result of it. But, you know, mistakes were made. That's how, that's how this kind of thing happens in culture. The third kind is the accusatory apology, which is actually a cousin of the if apology, but it goes something like this. I'm sorry that you were so offended by what I said, (laughs) which isn't, it's actually making an accusation in your apology. It's the craziest thing. The fourth kind of apology is the defensive apology. And this is where the person making the apology is actually going into defense mode and sharing the evidence for why they did nothing wrong while they make an apology. I'm sorry, but, and then comes the defense. You see how subtle this is sometimes in our lives, how what sounds like an apology can actually be something far different. And as we come to this topic of repentance, it's important for us to understand the words that we're speaking and understand exactly what we're saying when we actually bring apologies in our lives. Because all of us have been in that place where we've done something wrong. So I want you to pay attention this week to the conversations you have, the apologies that are said. Don't use this as a weapon in your marriages, okay? That's not the point. But I want you to just pay attention to the ways that we use words and we hide behind them and we, and we don't really say what we mean sometimes. It's interesting, this word apology. It actually comes from, a Greek, uh, from the Greek language. And apology originally meant a defense, a defense for one's beliefs. Uh, to speak in one's defense would have been the, the actual definition. This is where we get the idea of apologetics in Christianity. Apologetics is not the art of learning to apologize for your beliefs, Right? Apologetics is being able to defend why you believe. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's a sense of needing to have a defense, to know the reason for the hope that you have. But over time in the English language, we've kind of shifted what apology means because no longer is it so much a defense, right? It's more uh, feeling sorry, regret, remorse for what we've done. So that, that definition has shifted in the English language, but I would almost say that With the way that we apologize, sometimes it's really more the former that we mean when we say apology, right? We're actually using the word sorry to actually express our frustration with someone else or or to deflect blame, which ties in well with the sermon this morning because we've been talking about idols, but now it's time to talk about what we should do with our idols. And the first step for us is the step that Jesus called us to in Matthew chapter 1, verse 15. It's to repent. To repent. What does it mean to repent. So to, to look at that, I want to look at one of Paul's letters, and he talks about this idea of apology and regret, remorse, repentance. What is all of that? It's in 2 Corinthians, if you'll turn with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Paul's written 1 Corinthians, of course, but our guess is he's actually written another letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians because he refers back to another letter that seemed to be a scathing letter that actually Uh, he talks about in these verses. So pay attention to what he says. This is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Now, there are a couple 
key words that I want to dig into a little bit here, okay? Uh, the, the normal Greek word you would use for the idea of remorse or regret is the word metamalethes. Metamalethes. It means basically to express remorse or regret. And, and so if someone wanted to say, you know, I feel real sorry for what happened. I regret that it happened. That would be the term you would use. And that's exactly what you see here in verse 8. He uses the word metamalethes twice when he talks about remorse. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. In other words, we didn't invent the non-apology apology, right? Well, son, I, I may have caused you sorrow. I don't regret it, though. And then he continues on talking about it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. So it leads them eventually to repentance. So that's one term is remorse, regret. That's what Paul uses twice there in verse 8. Which leads to the second Greek word that he goes to in verse 9. It's the word for repentance, which is the word metanoia. Metanoia has a different sense than metamalethes. Metanoia goes a further step to repentance, which actually means to to change one's mind. It, it, It involves action, not just words of remorse or regret. And the difference between these two words is crucial when it comes to repentance in our lives. I have a longtime friend with a, a guy that we saw uh, two different, uh, the word sorry we interpret in two different ways. I'll call him Brandon, okay? Uh, in Brandon's family of origin, and that's where a lot of our understanding of words come from, Brandon, when he said sorry, what he meant was, I regret, I, I have remorse over what happened, but there was no real intention to change the behavior. That's all that sorry meant. Now, in my family, when we said sorry, what we were saying was more than that. We were saying, I regret and I have remorse, but I intend not to do that. And if we didn't mean to change our behavior, we, we wouldn't say sorry. We'd use other words for what we meant. And so we had this conflict in our relationship because we'd have this struggle. And this is why it's really important to understand what we mean with words when we use them in our families. We need to know that we're talking about the same thing. And sometimes our fights come from misunderstanding the backgrounds that we come from. But Brandon and I had this conflict over and over again, and I would be frustrated because he would say sorry, and then he would go back to the behavior without a second thought. That wasn't what I meant when I said sorry. That's what Paul's talking about. The difference between regret and remorse, metamalethes, and the difference between repentance, metanoia. So metamalethes, again, remorse or regret. In that scenario, if that's what you mean by sorry, what you're saying is you're more concerned about the other person's hurt than your own sin. In other words, you're sorry you hurt them, but not necessarily sorry about how you acted. Maybe you're more concerned about the consequences than you are the actual behavior. Not sorry you did it, maybe sorry you got caught. Have you ever been there? It's more about talk. And it leads to a cycle in our lives when that's the place we are with God in particular. It leads to a cycle where we have an offense of some kind, we confess the sin of that, we find forgiveness, and then we end up right back there all over again. I know all of us have experienced that, right? We want things to be different. We start over on Monday morning, and we just fall into the same cycle. And so a lot of us end up in this cycle of, of feeling sorry, of having guilt, of asking forgiveness, of being forgiven, and then it happens all over again. But metanoia, repentance, is something else. It's to admit fault and sin. It's to say more fault lies with me than actually lies with you. It's about action. How many of us have been there? We've, we've expressed remorse about being caught, but in reality, we weren't going to change anything. We knew that deep down, even in our prayer to God sometimes, You cover over the consequences and hope that he'll forgive, but the reality is it's probably going to end up here again. See, deep down, that cycle happens in my life when I believe that my way 
is actually better than God's way. I actually don't trust that his way leads to life. I'm, I'm thinking that maybe God's trying to keep some pleasure or joy in life away from me with his commands rather than leading me toward the abundant life. So I ask forgiveness to get out of, under the consequences, which you need to do after every sin I learned growing up, right? This fear that was just there about the consequences. But I wasn't led to see the heart of God was leading me toward greater life. How many of you been there? It's like, it's like teenagers who... Who think their parents' rules are just a little too strict, and so they think their parents are trying to keep them from from some kind of fun experience, and so they say they're sorry to get out from under the consequences, but they know they're going to once they get out of ground and go right back to the same party or the same event. And that they're they're sorry for what they did, uh, not because what they did was wrong, because they got caught. And true repentance is to believe. That our sin is not the best way of life. It's to believe that God's commands, the way he's laid out as the maker of all things, is a far better way to live our lives. That's what it means to repent. It's to head one direction and to say, you know, this direction is leading toward death. I'm going to turn completely around 180 degrees and believe that the way God's laid out is the best way of life possible. Do you believe that this morning? I'm wondering. Because so much of my conversion was really about getting rid of consequences rather than being convinced that God's rules and his ways and his commands are actually the better way of life than the sin that so easily grabs me. Listen to what Paul says as he continues in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. In this passage, Paul's setting out two concepts. One is, he talks about his godly sorrow. He says, godly sorrow is this real deep sense that that I've done something wrong, but I can make it better, and God can forgive that, and I can move in a new direction. And what that does is it leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, which leaves no regret. But there's a worldly sorrow that's different. This is more guilt, and we all experience guilt. Guilt's a healthy thing. It's our conscience. It's the Holy Spirit working in us to see what's wrong. Guilt is a healthy emotion. The unhealthy emotion is the worldly sorrow, which I would call shame. And shame's different from guilt because guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I'm a terrible person. And when you get to that place and you think, I, you know, I, I may not change, what you're actually saying is, I don't know if I'm worthy of change. I don't know, I, maybe I'm just worse than everyone else. This is just going to be my lot. It's a loss of hope is what it is. So worldly sorrow, Paul says, leads to death. Because it's not the same as godly sorrow. Godly sorrow says, hey, there's a way out of this, and and forgiveness is going to lead me to new life. And so repentance leads me to salvation, which leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow is something else altogether, and it leads us toward death. There's actually a way this works out in a story in the book of Matthew that we see actually the result being exactly that. It's in the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Jesus has been convicted of the charges that are put before him. And there's a disciple that's been with Jesus for, 12, uh, for three years, Judas, who, who shows up in a scene here in Matthew 27. Listen to these words and listen to this connection between remorse, regret, and, and repentance, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who'd been betrayed, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away 
and hanged himself. Now the word in verse 3 that he uses that's remorse, he had remorse, is the same word that Paul uses. It's metamalathes. It's the sense of remorse or regret. It's different from repentance. It's different from godly sorrow would be that repentance idea. Worldly sorrow is a sense of, well, I guess I can't do anything about this. And so what's the result of that? It's exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7. Worldly sorrow leads to death. And in Judas's case, that's exactly what happened. He didn't say, see a way out, a way of forgiveness. He wasn't ready to repent. And I'm imagining in a group this size this morning, that there are people who aren't yet to the point of death. But boy, that cycle seems pretty deep in your life right now. And you're wondering, is there a way out? Is there a way that this cycle can change? This, maybe, maybe it's not guilt. Maybe you're in a place of shame. You're thinking, you know, I'm not worthy of so-and-so's love. I'm not worthy to be better than the life I've lived. And that's a lie of the evil one because God wants everyone to come to a knowledge of him, to repent of sin, to find life, abundant life in him. And maybe that's why you haven't repented. We, we don't trust that God's way is actually a better way and that he longs to see us live better than we do. Maybe we don't believe we're called to change or, or maybe we've lost hope that it's possible. Or perhaps we don't believe our sin is really that big of a deal. See, there aren't some special sins that lead to death. All sin leads to death. Especially when we get caught in this cycle of, well, I guess I'm not good enough and that's the end of things. This is serious stuff. And, and some of us are playing with sin, not realizing that we're playing with, with gasoline and matches. Early on in this series, we talked about the jealousy of God. Which sounds like an odd description for God because we assume that jealousy is always a bad thing. But what we saw earlier in the series is that God's a jealous God because he loves us. And in Exodus chapter 20, you see Israel coming to make a commitment to God. It's like a marriage ceremony we talked about it as. You remember? And these vows are the Ten Commandments. And these vows, you remember the first of them? You shall have no other gods before me, which just sounds like any other wedding you've been to, right? I commit to this woman or this man for the rest of of my life. It's excluding all others. It's making a choice. And the only proper response to a wandering eye after you've made that kind of exclusive commitment is jealousy, because jealousy is a sign that love's still there and there's a commitment to the relationship. And this is the kind of God that we have. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been there when you've seen a, a spouse that's gotten cheated on, you've been there to pick up the pieces with them, you've seen a kind of pain that isn't seen in other moments. It's the pain of betrayal. It's the pain of a commitment that was made that was broken in trust. There's a pain. In fact, I think there's an understanding that those who've experienced infidelity have of experiencing what God has experienced in our idolatry as well. There's a theology that comes from that for those that are able to move through it and, and consider themselves still worthy of love. Can you imagine, though, a spouse that, who felt remorse or regret over cheating on their spouse but who never intended to change their behavior? What spouse in their right mind would stay in a situation like that? The only way forgiveness is possible and reconciliation is possible is if the spouse who's cheated acknowledges his or her sin, but not just regret or remorse, but commits to say, this is going to change in my life. This won't happen again. It has to be true repentance or the marriage won't work. Because until you repent, you're in denial. 
You believe there's nothing wrong really with what you've done. Repentance is not feeling bad about getting caught. Repentance is not about talk. It's about action. Repentance means not making excuses for your behavior. Repentance is realizing that you're living your life in a way that's going to lead to death unless you turn around. So repentance is going in one direction. And it's saying, I'm not going that direction anymore. I'm turning around because this is the way to life and that's the way to death. Anything less is not repentance. I know that that repentance is one of those steps that we've always taught leading up to baptism. But my question is, with this definition and understanding, how many of us have truly repented? All of us in the room, my guess is, have known the guilt of our sin. We've expressed remorse and and regret to God. But how many of us have made such a commitment to say, this leads to death and I'm done with it because I'm trusting in God, knowing his way is better? Have you ever really repented? Have you ever ever really told God you were sorry and admitted to him that your way is leading in a way that cannot continue, that it will lead to death? And and you're saying, God, I'll give up everything. I'll, I'll turn over everything so that I can follow you with all that I have. Let me tell you, God is a loving God, and every command that he gives leads us toward more life. It leads us toward more joy. It leads us toward proper pleasure and the right boundaries. It leads toward the things we all desire. The evil one gets us to believe that actually he's trying to keep it from us. It's the story of Eve in the Garden of Eden. But God wants to do more than remove your consequences. He wants to lead you toward an abundant life. He wants to take all of your guilt once and for all. He wants to to remove that remorse and regret so that he can hand you a new way, a path that's more like repentance. And this is where I think 12-step groups like Celebrate Recovery get it so right. Because step one in that process is what? To admit, I'm powerless. This is not about regret or remorse. This, In fact, most of those who walk into that process, what are they saying? They're saying, this is going to lead toward death if this addiction continues. And the only hope I have is to admit I'm powerless and to get on a path that's going to lead me toward a more abundant life. And the truth is, in church, a lot of us can get away with regret and remorse in a way that an AA group knows you can't. Because it's serious about what the consequences of sin are. You can't go to AA and sit in denial. They'll sniff you out in a second. Everyone who succeeds in AA knows their addiction will lead to death if they don't get it under control. We all have an addiction to sins and idols, and we're kidding ourselves if we think it's not a big deal. When we come to church each Sunday, what we do here in worship is an act of repentance. I like the way Don McLaughlin says this. He says, worship is the essential component of repentance. For only when we give up our idols do we give up our sin, and our idols are cast aside as dead weight in the worship of the living God, when we sing songs to God, that's exactly what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves again that all those things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's God who is more important than all other things. And when we give him worship, we look more like him because you will become what you worship. If you worship success, you'll see people like rungs on a ladder. If you worship Uh, sexuality, you'll treat men and women like means to an end. See, the gods still exist. We just call them by different names. And they're still fighting for your worship. So it's time for us to stop the charade and to repent 
Like that's what I want us to do this morning is we've identified our idols, but this is a time for us to, to repent truly to God, not just express our regret and our remorse, but to say, God, for one, I, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going to need help along the way. It's not a magic that we, we say these words and it's all fixed, but God, I'm going to step out of the shame of worldly sorrow that leads to death, and, and I'm going to trust again in your way of repentance that leads to salvation, which leaves no regret. So the next few moments, a minute, minute and a half, I want to give us just some space and silence to confess whatever those idols may be that you've recognized over the last several weeks and months. What is it right now that really you've elevated to too high a place? It doesn't mean you have to get rid of it. It means you, you, you put God back on the throne and, and trust that his way is the best way. And that's what repentance is. That's what we're doing this morning is we're saying, God, enough of trying to get out from under your consequences. God, I want to learn to trust the way I walk that leads toward death is not the best way. I'm going to walk back on the path that you're guiding me on. So right now, I just want to call you to come to the quiet. I want to ask you to use this as a time of prayer. And then after that time, we're going to pray a prayer of of confession together uh, as we close uh, this message today. So come to the quiet with me right now. I want to invite you at this time. We have, we're going to have words on the screen. That's a prayer I want to pray over us, over the different idols that we've identified over the last several weeks. What I want to ask you to do is, as I say these words, if you'll respond to each of these, that if you're committed to make this word of repentance, respond with, Lord, have mercy, as we walk through this time of corporate repentance together. Lord, we want to repent of the idols we've allowed to exist in our lives. And as we repent of these idols, we beg your mercy and forgiveness. Hear our prayer. Lord, have mercy. Lord, we confess and repent of our sins of greed and any idol associated with money. Lord, we confess and repent of our sins of nationalism and finding security anywhere other than in you. Lord, we confess and repent of our relational sins. We've made our spouses, children, and significant others try to play the role of God in our lives. Lord, we confess and repent of our religious idols. We want to find our lives in you instead of trying to control you through our religion. Lord, we confess and repent of our sins related to anger. We choose to live lives of forgiveness instead. Lord, we confess and repent of our sins related to lust. We choose to live lives of purity and single-minded loyalty. Lord, we confess and repent of our sins related to pride. We choose to live lives of humility as we follow Jesus who gave up everything to save us. Amen. You've spoken those words with a confident heart today. God says he's faithful to forgive us these sins. I want to pronounce that forgiveness. Sometimes we're ashamed or abashed to do that, but it's important to hear those words because rarely do we hear those words, you're forgiven. You don't have to live in this godly uh, sorrow or this, this worldly sorrow that leads to shame, that leads to death. No, what we've done is we've stepped out of that into this godly sorrow, this guilt that leads to life as we move into repentance. And so right now we're about to move to a time at the table of the Lord. And Every time we come to this table, it's a reminder of of many things. But this morning, I want to give a specific focus because I know that some of you are working through relationship stuff right now. And and some of you have heard non-apology apologies or what you would term as that. Some of you have heard real apologies in your lives. 
And sometimes when you're the one who's been offended, it's very hard to give that mercy, that forgiveness. And what I want to press right now is for those who've been making confession to God and, and maybe in relationships with one another, the table's a place where we come together and we offer that forgiveness. We learn the forgiveness of Jesus so that we can offer it to others. And so as you take this bread and as you take this cup, I want to I challenge you to relational wholeness again, to being willing to forgive those that have caused harm to you, that have offered apologies that you would walk as much as you're able to back in to to the restoration of those relationships to to believe the best for the season going forward. That's a challenge in our lives. And it may be a spouse, it may be children you're walking through that with, it may be a friend, it may be people in this church that you haven't been connected with for a while. And maybe that restoration needs to come. In fact, Scripture talks about laying our gifts at the altar and going and making it right for the brothers. So the table's a place where we come. And we learn the ways of Jesus. And, and this morning is a call to remember that the mercy he's given us, we're called to give to others. So as we take this bread, as we drink this cup, I want you to think about your relationships, the way that God has brought us back together through Jesus Christ and the ways we're called to relational wholeness. And some of you need to be challenged this morning to take that step and to offer full forgiveness. I want to challenge you to do that. Let's pray as we come to the table of the Lord this morning. God, it always feels good to, uh, to confess our sins, to repent of our sins. It feels bad on one hand because we have to come to grips with who we are and the mistakes we make. But God, so often it seems like we, we come to these places of forgiveness and we never feel like we're fully forgiven. And so this morning, I pray that you would help us to feel the full weight of what this table is about, the story of death and resurrection of cross and, and an empty tomb. We get to celebrate that in a few weeks at Easter. But God, we get a head start today at this table every week when we come together. God, lead us to see your mercy today as we take this bread and as we drink this cup. And may we be people who are merciful to others out of the mercy that you have offered to us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.